This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Death Spirals. Summer Movies. And Occult Cashmere. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. It's time again for That Thing I Always Say, and this time around you can tell from the fact that I am introducing this segment that it is a thing that Ken always says that we are going to roll about in our minds, put in the intellectual rock tumbler until it comes out all shiny and and fresh and new. And Ken, uh, recently uh, you mentioned, I think during a panel, that a thing that you always say is that death spirals make for good gaming. Why is this a thing you always say? Well, it's a thing I always say because it's true, Robin, much like everything I always say. Um, specifically, I say it because the greatest role-playing game of all, Call of Cthulhu by Sandy Peterson, incorporates the first and greatest death spiral of all, the sanity death spiral in which in order to confront the monsters that you face, you must use uh, magic spells that drain your sanity, but by doing so, you drain your sanity even faster than confronting the monsters. You wind yourself up into a lovely little ball and topple off the edge of the cliff uh, for proper dramatic purposes. You can see this same sort of thing recreated in all manner of games, either generationally, as in Pendragon, you can see it in uh, Don't Rest Your Head by Fred Hicks, where the... Uh, uh, length of time you stay awake is both your victory condition and a minus to all of your skills. Um, you can see it sort of in reverse in the escalation die in 13th age, where it is a death spiral, but it's a death spiral for the bad guys, not for the good guys, but it creates the same uh, story creation, which is it drives plot forward and, and moves action forward. And that is why death spirals make good gaming is not because it's fun to see the mechanics tick over or the mathematics play down, but it's fun to have something in a game that is always pushing you toward a dramatic outcome. And whether that dramatic outcome is victory in a combat against a dragon or a miserable uh, death at the hands of deep ones, the point is that you're being moved toward a dramatic outcome. You're not merely static. And that is why in, for example, the new Vampire 5th Edition, we're incorporating something of a death spiral, a slightly shallower one, into the hunger mechanics so that as you get hungrier, you show more of a chance to frenzy, but if you frenzy, 
Um, you can damp down on that by using composure, but composure is the pool against which you roll to prevent frenzy. So you have an ongoing death spiral of hunger happening as a vampire. So I think it's really interesting that you have pointed to a reverse death spiral, which I guess is a life spiral yeah. uh, in 13th age as, as also being an example of this principle, because this suggests that it's not the death part of it, not the inexorable swirl toward doom, although obviously in a horror piece, doom is where you want to swirl toward, uh, but uh, that you're looking for something that accelerates, uh, which of course is a basic tenet of uh, a an exciting narrative. Uh, now, not all narratives have to be exciting, but when you do want a narrative to uh, increase the thrills as you go along, that's acceleration. So, is this something that can be added to any game? Any looking for some sort of mechanism, not to enjoy the mechanism itself, but the feeling that things are spiraling, getting faster, accelerating. Is is it, is it really that uh, acceleration makes gaming great? The mechanical spiral, uh, which creates the acceleration, is I think necessary. You can't just say now you add a thing. Um, the escalation die comes close to that, but it has a lot of other, uh, neat effects that, that twig onto it. And especially at higher levels, when the monsters can twig onto the acceleration die, escalation die as well, you begin to see some of that, uh, potential come into its own. But, uh, by and large, the spiral is a mechanical necessity to create acceleration in, I think, an interesting way. And so I would say accelerating toward drama is, Make, makes good gaming, and as you hint, because so much of my game design and game attention is in horror, the death spiral is the way that you accelerate most of it. Right, and so, but it's not exclusively uh, a horror thing. Now, no. in narrative, horror in general, you are signing on, when you go to see a horror movie or read a horror book, you are signing on to at least the strong possibility that the characters you identify are not going to make it, which at least in the uh, North American ethos of uh, what your contract is with the storyteller is otherwise strongly uh, abjured, right? That on only the horror genre, really, and, and possibly, you know, uh, the noir genre, which has always been more popular with aficionados than with the, the mass popular audience. <laughs> one, of, one of the many uh, genres that's more popular with game designers than with gamers. Yes. Uh, and so this is this is where we get to the question that calling something a death spiral is, is a hard sell. A lot of people don't want to play horror because they want to win. They want uh, a happy ending. But even narratives that wind up with the expectation that the heroes will all make everything right and, and uh, except, per, you know, perhaps for the ritual sacrifice of a, a mentor character or, or two, that you're going to come out of this okay audience. Even there, there's a, a sort of a spiral toward doom and then another spiral back out of it again. So quite often in a popular narrative, the hero reaches his very lowest point and then is able to uh, rocket out of that and recover and, uh, and make everything well. Is there um, something interesting to explore in the idea in, in non-doom-laden uh, genres of a sort of a, uh, I guess, a, a sine wave where you... Uh, spiral down and spiral back up again. There are games that provide, for example, the GM a number of dice as a result of player action or player inaction. Um, uh, Wilderness of Mirrors, I think, is where I saw it first, but I know that it shows up in, I believe, the 220 system uh, for Modifius, where the actions of the players provide the... They create the uh, material conditions by which their opponents hose them. And 
that tends to create that sort of sine wave as they build up a bunch of dice for the bad guys. The bad guys then whap them with it. The bad guys are now out of dice. The players are still the players, and then they can jump over. I, I see that similarly, although less mechanically and more socially enforced in the uh, card game mechanic that uh, runs Castle Falkenstein. Because the natural tendency is to hoard your good cards for the big play at the end. So you wind up playing your wimpy cards during the first bit. The GM is drawing randomly. They're not uh, building a hand, usually. And so your odds are that you're going to get beaten in the first part. And then, because you've been holding on to your kings and queens and aces, you're able to come back with a satisfying smackdown at the end. Again, that is that, that presumes sort of standard playing card mentality as opposed to being explicitly encouraged in the rules the way that I believe the 220 system does. But, uh, and I'm sure that uh, Chris Birch is yelling at me that that's not the name of the system, but I've forgotten it and I have a cold. Right. The the deck of of playing cards, uh, as opposed to a die roll, is inherently itself a limited resource. Right. uh, That, uh, you know, if you're rolling a die, you can roll 120 and then you can roll another 20. But if your system is... Uh, card-based, uh, there's only so many uh, kings, there's only so many successes that you can have, and that, interestingly, I think, mirrors the structure of fiction more, in that the heroes can only, you know, they only get so many upbeats, they've got to have enough downbeats in order for that to be uh, successful. So how do you, uh, if you're going to uh, design death spirals into things that don't have them, uh, what do you uh, look for when you uh, encounter a new rule set uh, as uh, a possible place to start installing that dynamic well you first you look for what is the dramatic behavior the dramatic state that you're trying to drive things toward so in vampire you're trying to drive things toward hunger and awareness of the beast and frenzy in call of cthulhu you're trying to drive things toward insanity and uh, being stretched uh, too thin over the page then so both of those uh, states then get mechanical representation and you can use any number of rules tweaks to move your character along the arc of that mechanical representation. But the first thing that you look for is the state that you want people to fall into. So one could imagine, for example, a, a romance game where it is a love spiral that your goal at the end of the game or the goal that the game is trying to do is to force you to fall in love with perhaps unsuitable partners. Maybe, you know, it's a, a, a Romeo Juliet type thing where all the cute girls are Capulets and you're all Montagues. Maybe it's a sort of a caste system where in India, where someone's got a, a bad a caste background. Maybe you're just playing a Jane Austen in which the, the good looking bad boys are all rogues and rapscallions without uh, barely even a hundred pounds uh, in income. They've all been shamed at Bath. Exactly. And, and so, the goal of the drama is to always be falling in love. And then the goal of the player is to f- wind up in love with some, with Mr. Darcy, with someone who's got 10,000 a year and uh, will be socially acceptable to you, but you're also in love with them. And so the game then would encourage the creation of that spiral into love by probably giving you some sort of restraint token that you can use, but as you use it, it uh, weakens other aspects of the, of your character. What I'm hearing now is a death spiral as a narrowing of choices that at the beginning of a, a story, uh, the characters have all sorts of uh, choices before them or many choices. Not, and as they go through the events of the narrative, slowly take away all of their alternate uh, choices and then sort of drive them toward the climactic point that forces them to make the, the big final important choice that uh, changes who they are. And even a uh, 
mystery structure can be seen as a uh, death spiral of uh, scenes being knocked off and taken off the list of other possibilities being removed, of uh, red herrings being sorted out, of suspects being ruled out until you are finally uh, pushed toward that last final confrontation with whoever it must be who, who did the thing. So that in the structure of a, uh, a gumshoe scenario, for example, uh, the uh, early set of leads you get, at least in the ones that I write, may be quite uh, large so that you want to have a feeling initially that you've got a lot of different choices to make and you could, you know, go talk to the bartender or the uh, librarian or head over and uh, chat with the mayor or check out the mysterious lights at the outside of town. But as you start to do those things, you run out of other choices to make and the information that you get in those scenes will then channel you into uh, other sets of scenes. But finally, it all sort of uh, narrows into uh, a great story is about a, a difficult choice being made, a sort of uh, Scylla and Charybdis, as it were. And so you have to end up at the end finally making that choice. So in a way, uh, you can look at a story as one in which uh, choices spiral away from you and you are forced to finally make uh, the one big uh, choice that the whole question behind the narrative is uh, expecting uh, to pose to you. And when you can make that plot or that narrative quality match the emotional tone a la call of cthulhu then you really have you know absolutely best gaming which is why you know call of cthulhu among other reasons is the greatest role-playing game ever because it deliberately creates that melding and why when we do trail of cthulhu we focus more on the narrative uh winnowing if you want to call it that and uh because uh uh, I, I borrowed Sandy's mechanics so per, so well that uh, we already had the other half of it nailed down. So the uh, creation of a game that drives both narrative choice toward a climax and drives emotional state toward a climax and ideally has them happen at the same time produces an even more heightened state, right? Right. Now, I suppose there are forms of play that sort of uh, militate against that or, or player tastes. Uh, that want to stay away from a spiral where they have to make right. choices. Yeah. Uh, people don't like to make choices in real life. Especially there are people who don't like one. King Lear, Robin. I'm not in charge of those people. Yes. Um, so, for example, uh, sandbox play is sort of the idea that you ha retain maximal choice at all times. And so, quite frequently, you will have, you know, if you uh, don't, as a GM, efficiently spiral away the choices that the players have, it will continually not take on that sh shape, right? That if you want a narrative to have form, uh, you start to need to, to spiral them in some way toward a, a climactic whatever. But there are uh, certainly players who want to maintain full range of choice at all times, and that's how they determine whether they had a good experience or not. But that uh, is something that uh, pulls against the idea of, uh, of a spiral. So is there... Uh, if you have a group, presumably, that is just all sandboxy and wants it light and picaresque and uh, always wants to be able to skip town when uh, things uh, get tight, that uh, requires you uh, to sort of radically reconfigure your expectations of how stories work because they don't want to be in the main thing about stories, which is a big, tough decision at the end. I think you're conflating a couple of things. There are plenty of sandboxy players who still like the emotional death spiral quality. They still like driving into a drama. Yes. Uh, Hashtag not all sandboxes. Yes, but they, but they want to, um, uh, they want to pick, for example, which 
cult they went after. They want to pick which right. mystery they're solving. And it is the job of the sandbox DM, I would argue, in a picaresque or a gothic game, if you were drawing two different types of game here, to provide the things in the sandbox of varying quality and form. Because if all you're doing is digging up the same red plastic brontosaurus, then the sandbox is functionally not a sandbox. So the sandbox, by definition, in order to be a sandbox, has to have things that are more or less tempting, more or less interesting, more or less dangerous, more or less powerful, more or less compelling. And it is the core, the act of winnowing away their own decisions that can drive a sandbox player to that point in a narrative. And I've run many, many sandbox games that still wind up in that exact, we have to make a crisis decision about a crisis moment uh, point of gameplay because the players are in theory drawn to what they're most interested in get rich, richer play out of. And if players are deliberately uh, picaresque, which is different from sandbox, they're deliberately looking for a series of one-off adventures. Then a death spiral becomes something that maybe something like the escalation die is better for that drives it episodically, but not over the whole length of the campaign. In a way you're disguising as a sandbox, what is really like a pachinko game where the, uh, you know, you're a bead going through the thing and up at the top of the game, there's many choices of where you can go. But once you start to make your choices, again, really, you are in the early stages of a, a sandbox game that takes on, uh, nonetheless, the form of a compelling narrative that the choices you make early on, again, lead you into that winnowing of, of, uh, of choice, just the way that a mystery scenario uh, winnows away the uh, discarded uh, leads and the uh, discarded subjects. Uh, sorry, the discarded suspects. Uh, and what I suspect, actually, is that we have reached the end of this thing that you always say and need to peer through the horizon of the next commercial to see what's waiting on the other side. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The rattle of the projector, or perhaps in this case, the 
great noisy thumping of the look at our awesome new digital projector sound system, the smell of popcorn, and still the perennial sticky thing under the seats welcome us once more into the Cinema Hut. And today, the Cinema Hut has extra special bonus features, namely it's air-conditioned, because we go into the Cinema Hut in the summer not just to see a man we recognize from comics punching a different man we recognize from (laughs) comics, but also because it is cold inside. And on that note, let us begin with Pirates of the Caribbean 5 and Alien Covenant. Robin? Well, before we get, uh, and specifically, uh, what I want to talk about is something that had bone-chilled not just the audiences uh, this year, but the uh, executives in Hollywood, because there's been a sudden shift in the way that people go to movies or decide which movies to go to. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has been a thing that has existed for a long time. It's a, we all know it's the aggregator that takes uh, critics and then later audience ratings and gives you a percentage. And Fandango, the big ticket selling uh, company, bought Rotten Tomatoes a while back, and they have started putting Rotten Tomatoes ratings on all of their ticket buying interfaces so that now when you decide that you want to go to a movie and you book through Fandango, you immediately then see the Rotten Tomatoes reading. And it turns out that a bunch of really terrible movies this year suddenly died at the box office, supposedly critic-proof tentpole movies, uh, like a couple that you're going to talk about, and also the Transformers movie, which neither of us is going to talk about except as an example of this. Suddenly people are looking at that tomato meter rating and going... I've decided to go see a movie, but I'm going to decide to go see something else. And this is greatly perturbing the executives who, of course, the whole point of having a big tentpole movie is it's something you can spend a lot of money on and, and whether it's good or not has nothing to do with what uh, whether people go to it. So uh, this is it's causing woe for uh, executives, but of course, wheel for uh, moviegoers, except Ken, you still wound up in a couple of these turkeys. Uh, So let's start off with a turkey shoot. Yes. uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which, as uh, internet commentator Jenny Nicholson pointed out, is literally about a dead man telling a story. (laughs) (laughs) It's really dead franchises sell no tickets. Yes. Was an attempt by them, I guess, to uh, jump reboot the franchise, say goodbye to uh, Johnny Depp's character arc and move it into another thing only to discover they have no ideas besides Johnny Depp makes faces. And, uh, the, the, the whole, uh, as, as always, when Hollywood scriptwriters are desperate, you get a shipload of daddy issues in this case, pretty much literally, uh, which collides with another one. Poor Javier Bardem is there wondering what could possibly have gone wrong with his life. Uh, you will recognize that expression from Spyfall, perhaps oh, he keeps getting good in, the, in the worst uh, tent poles. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that, uh, no country for old men did him the favors that it was meant to, um, I think it just put him on the radar of a lot of terrible people with a lot of money. Yeah, we can, uh, oh, this, this, uh, villain character is not particularly dynamic, but, oh, remember Javier Bardem and that yeah. scene with the quarter? Oh, yeah, get yeah, him. He'll, let's do that. He'll punch up this villain. He'll, yeah, and which is the same sort of, you know, uh, fun goes here scripting that people used to write for Robin Williams. Yep. And, uh, that didn't work either. Just, uh, note to movie people. 
Uh, the other one is Alien Covenant, which I went to see uh, because my wife is an alienophile and loves the franchise desperately and dearly. And I'm sure that if I had managed to dodge that bullet, Will Heinmarch would have taken me to it because he also loves the Alien franchise very, well, very much. If you're going to take that bullet, you should take it for uh, for Sheila. For, for Sheila, exactly. Yeah. And not uh, nothing against Will, who is a delightful movie companion. That said, uh, even the most delightful of movie companions pales <laughs> when seated in front of Alien Covenant, which is the uh ridley scott going back saying no one got prometheus i apparently was too subtle yeah so i'm going I, I guess to they just want me to do alien again <laughs> so i'm going to redo alien but i'm going to redo it in the last 45 minutes of the movie that i wanted to tell which is about characters no one likes dying in predictable fashion uh there is a kind of an interesting beginning to approach the androids the fact that he did not approach them that way was one of the big original bits of alien in fact and so now to make them into frankensteins is a uh it's a sign of creative desperation it's a sign of something going wrong uh fastbender does about as well as he can as uh the uh as the as the robot but spoiler uh the robot is a bad robot not a good robot and is uh, by golly the end is alien and if you saw alien surely the thing that would have made it better was to have it happen in 45 minutes instead of two hours and the characters you care nothing about instead of characters that you love um there are a number of, of good performances and there are some beautiful shots in alien covenant unlike pirates five which is ugly almost uh, soup to nuts uh, alien covenant has some glorious shots the art book of this movie if you are an alien uh, alienophile i urge you to buy that and uh, to skip the movie as skippably as you possibly can scott has never had a script sense like tim burton uh if he's shooting a good script it's coincidental Although I think even more with Scott, I, I I think he's sort of a meddler and will take a good script and impose his weirdo visual ideas on it. Like I think the, that's what happened with Kingdom of Heaven, for example. Not that that began as a great script. And the uh, and the Robin Hood movie, which was originally supposed to be from the Sheriff of Nottingham's point of view, but he wanted it to be about the physics of archery. <sighs> uh, so, yes, uh, Scott has always been a profound visual stylist, but uh, uh, he needs a good script. And uh, so speaking of, uh, of scripts and outer space, uh, another one that I uh, haven't seen and I think is divisive is Valyrian. Yes. Uh, speaking of people with a glorious visual style, Valyrian and the uh, City of a Thousand Planets is Luc Besson's betting everything uh, and the farm on a big uh, tentpole release. It, I don't believe, did super well in America. I don't know how it did overseas. Where the comic book is actually a thing. Where, yes, where people care about Valerian. Yeah, it only did 40 million in America and it did 170 million overseas, which is not enough. It barely has made back its initial budget and in the metric by which you need to make double your budget to make money, uh, that's not a good look. So one hopes that Luc Besson, uh, will be forced into making uh, exciting spy movies instead of garbage movies, but one can never tell when people are forced into making movies what the end result will be. But now, now does it have a third act? Valerian has a third act. Uh, it is um, not a, a, at any point the fault of uh, Luc Besson that you have grown to hate and despise the main character Valerian by the time <laughs> the third act comes around. That well, is all. He could have maybe done something about that. He, in fairness, um, he did write the script, and many of the things that make you hate and despise Dane DeHaan are not merely his sulky ineffectiveness, but also some of the lines of dialogue that he delivers. But but the the story has has a number of of nice turns. There is, as always, with some of these uh, sort of. Uh, 
French uh, notions. There is the period where you needed one Anglo-Saxon to watch the, the rough cut and say, why did that happen? Uh, so that you could maybe bolster it a little bit, but the... Um, oh, it uh, is the whimsical. Uh, yeah, exactly. It happened because it would happen now. And so the, uh, the, the, the story does progress. It's a, a beautiful movie. Um, Cara Delevingne, who I actually thought was going to be the weak link here, turns out to be the thing holding the movie together as Laureline, who is Valerian's, Valerian's sidekick in the comics. And it was apparently, uh, kidnapped from ancient, uh, from medieval France or something. I, I, I was told this later by people <laughs> who may have been lying to me. But for whatever reason, she comes across as the sort of sensible, intelligent, interesting, worthwhile part of the team. And, uh, it is her, <laughs> it is her affection for Valerian, uh, that is one of the big motivational problems in this movie. But it is gorgeous because it is Luke Besson. It is very optimistic and, and positive and glowy in a way that movies used to be about space. And then we started going to work with, um, uh, uh surly janitors in space, starting to a, a, an extent in the, re, in the rebellion and then, uh, full, full born the alien franchise. And now we're back in space in shiny spaceships that people care enough about to pick up after themselves. And it's a much, uh, it's a much different look than we have. It's also one that really sort of welcomes a lot of, uh, uh, CGI and AI type behaviors that people are more used to maybe now in their real lives. Now that you have a phone that will tell you everything, people are more used to a spaceship that will tell you everything. Uh, and so you get a, a more interesting batch of possibilities in the story and in the filming. And those are the possibilities that Bassan is always alive to. He's never been a boring filmmaker and Valerian is not boring uh, at any point. You're just mad at Valerian through about the last two thirds of it. Now, Tentpole Wise, the story of the summer gets us out of the uh, French comic book world and into the uh, American comic book world because Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman was a big revelation, a real genuine popular hit all around the world. And it seems like the uh, secret there is if you want to do iconic DC characters, maybe you should have them be like iconic DC characters and have them full of hope and uh, traditional rooting for the uh, hero and also having a pretty clear, clean uh, storyline as well, which is always a huge bonus in superhero origin stories, uh, having everything all sort of connect and not a lot of, uh, you know, there's a little bit of setup and plugging for the rest of that uh, chunk of movies, but it seems really that the lesson we should draw from here is that rather than taking the creative uh, helm of those uh, movies away from uh, Zack Snyder and giving it to Jeff Johns. Maybe they should just give them to Patty Jenkins. Exactly. Or give them to whoever Patty Jenkins, Kevin Feig was the guy. Cause I assume Patty Jenkins had better things to do growing up than read comic books, but someone on her team absolutely knew how uh, Wonder Woman worked in the comics and was there as 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 a as a part i'm assuming of this of the script writing the movie also takes time to let you care about uh both wonder woman and uh, steve trevor which a lot of superhero movies just assume well of course you care about them they're the superhero they're why you came to see it and it presents a backstory in the uh origin that pays off but not in the obvious way in the big boring superhero fight that happens at the end and since you actually care about wonder woman the fight is only half boring so that's a huge triumph for these movies the uh the the visual contrasts are good the sort of cost of heroism is present without being you know uh without over 
bombing the movie's tone. So it, it, it hits tone exactly right. Again, uh, Patty Jenkins has proven that she can handle, uh, tone, uh, previously in, in other movies. So that was where we were in good hands. And I think she's probably a pretty good director of actors. So Chris Pine is playing way outside his normal sort of, uh, good looking piece of ham range when he plays Steve Trevor as, you know, a genuinely self-sacrificing guy who is, you know, in love almost against his will with this goddess that he's discovered and the, the sort of way that pine brings that out in his character and in, in the acting is something that we have not seen from him before. And perhaps we'll never see from him again. And the action direction is just top notch, but the, it's so often the downfall of these films where you don't, uh, you can't tell where the characters are in physical space. And there's just a lot of uh, loudness and cutting between the things. So you can't tell that the, uh, uh, stuntmen are playing the actors or that the uh, director doesn't have a sense of spatial relationships, but uh, the fight scenes are just uh, uh, really top-notch. Uh, moving over from DC to Marvel, I like the Guardians series more than a little more than you do, and I uh, liked Guardians 2 quite a bit. The uh, sort of bravura sense of that opening credit sequence, I think, really encapsulates James Gunn's melding of his own sort of uh, whimsical sensibility with the broader uh, sort of tone of the whole Marvel Universe movies. And uh, I liked uh, that one quite a bit, too. And having uh, Kurt Russell show up and be a, uh, a special effect even before he's a, a CGI effect is uh, it, it's, it's always a way to improve a movie is have Kurt Russell show up. Have Kurt Russell in it. Yes. Um, Kurt Russell is... I think probably one of the reasons that you like it uh, far better than it deserves. The the movie basically just sort of rambles between music videos, which is fine, but then close with something attractive, not a standard washed out, dirty Marvel f- uh, fight that, uh, unlike One Roman, you can't tell where anything is and you don't care particularly. The, the jaunty music video seems to be uh, James Gunn's happy spot. So let's make a movie that's all that. That was the great thing about the first one was that so much of it was in that sort of Chris Foss, uh, 70s bright colors music video space that even the boring fight at the end was pretty to look at and you didn't mind that it was a boring, stupid fight. And then this boring, stupid fight at the end of this one is not pretty to look at. You can't tell what's going on. And it has tarnished the palette of the movie, which up until then had been very, you know, very um, uh, uh, Roger Dean Yes cover and uh, very attractive in a lot of ways. Um, even the mass murdery music video is, is a great piece of filmmaking. And it shows that, yeah, if, if Gunn gets a chance to set up a set piece, he can let you know where everything is because the, the, the Yondu walking down the corridor of the spaceship, they've set all those locations up previously. That scene really works. Uh, none of the characters work because we learned in the first movie that they were all, uh, on each other's side, but now it's like, well, they all have to be fighting for no reason. So let's give them no reason to fight. And. It, it sets up some fun dialogue, but it's empty. It's ironic. And when the movie's ending makes you, asks you to believe in character motivation, you spent the first half of the movie undercutting the character motivation. So guess what? You don't. Uh, also, uh, in sort of a, probably even like a greater triumph of tone, Marvel has taken over from Sony the creative reins of the Spider-Man franchise. We uh, talk about things that didn't need to be rebooted, so they sort of didn't. They just carry on as if this is the second Spider-Man movie in the series with this particular Spider-Man in it. And quite unbelievably, particularly given Sony's super hands-on-ness with uh, the first Sam Raimi cycle of Spider-Man movies, uh, Marvel got them to sign on the idea 
why don't we make this smaller? Why don't we make this stake smaller and make Spider-Man younger and, and uh, uh, you know, have a, a personal relationship between the, uh, the hero and the villain? And, and uh, it feels like the early Spider-Man comics, but even the early Spider-Man comics do not have him this young. Right. I mean, the youth is part of it. There is a lot of backstory about Amy Pascal basically using this as a way to escape Sony more than as a way to enforce Sony's uh, will. And I note that Sony is continuing to announce garbage Spider-Man movies, or at least garbage movies in the Spider-Man franchise. So this may be the last good Spider-Man movie we get for a while. Um, even if Tom Holland comes back and Tom Holland is certainly one of the, one of the joys of this movie and casting a young, skinny kid with dance background as Spider-Man is a very, very clever move and kudos to whoever did it. The thing that I like about it, as you note, the, uh, the low stakes, the fact that it's, does Spider-Man get the girl? Uh, does this one villain get to do one heist? Uh, it's, it's a much more handleable, uh, friendly neighborhood Marvel movie, if you will. Uh, Spider-Man's not stopping the earth's core from blowing up. Uh, people aren't going after Spider-Man for being Spider-Man. It's just a, you know, a day in the neighborhood stopping a crime and the crime just happens to be carried out on a slightly super rare level because he's Spider-Man and that's what Spider-Man comics and are. Speaking of actors whose faces are special effects, right? Uh, Michael Keaton in his mm -hmm. uh, career resurgence, uh, you know, just him and Tom Holland in a car has way more impact than the, uh, uh, you know, as you point out, the murky CGI fight sequence at the end of virtually any superhero movie. Yes. And um, uh, again, because we've seen Keaton's motivation, we've seen his character, we've grown to understand it. And because his character quite brilliantly is using the dialogue that you would expect the superhero to use in other movies where he's like, well, we, the, the rich and the tough guy, the rich and the powerful can't get away with it. We got to fight back for the scrappy little guy and you're cheering him and they're, Oh, right. He's the bad guy. Sorry. Stop cheering. Um, and that along with Keaton's charisma and Keaton's ability to sort of inhabit that character and act well. And the fact that Peter Parker, you know, has other stuff going on in his life and is not, you know, obsessed with the vulture, even to the extent the vulture is obsessed with Spider-Man, which he's not really, uh, that, that drives the movie in an interesting kind of a, of a way. And so when you get Tom Holland and Michael Keaton in a car, you know, how those characters got in the car, you know what they both want out of that car scene. And you know that only one of them is going to get it. And it's a really, uh, it, it's a great bit because someone has bothered to write the characters as relatable human beings moving through a space. Oh, and by the way, one of them is a superhero. And, uh, we come to our last heavily animated tentpole movie, a uh, war for the planet of the apes. Uh, this one I, uh, liked, uh, quite a bit. It certainly, brings in an incredible wealth, both of historical atrocity and filmmaking uh, reference. There's uh, John Ford is all over this film, but he's not the only director being cited. And uh, it is sort of the your, your elegiac apes movie. And uh, is uh, quite obviously so, particularly at the uh, beginning, but it recalls the Ford uh, cavalry westerns, except uh, your... Uh, the, the cavalry are not the good guys in this one. The apes are. Yes, and, so uh, dancing with apes. Yes. Um, I, I, I see these traditionally um, on cable or on uh, Netflix uh, after they've been in theaters. I have not yet seen one that was good enough for me to want to go see the next one in the theater. Uh, if War for the Planet of the Apes turns out to be one I should have seen in the theater, well, there you go. These things happen in the world. And uh, with that uh, imagined war against uh, the apes of the future, let's... Uh, Head on through this commercial and then back into a uh, actual historical war on the screen. 
Hey Ken, what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show would have gone to podcast heaven by now were it not for the support of Patreon backers exactly like Martin Rundqvist, Samuel Holly, Brian Malcolm, Brendan Cloherty, and Jake Moss. And we're back to talk about Dunkirk. You uh, consider uh, Dunkirk a, a, a pinnacle. I consider it a very, very strong film. And uh, it is a really... A riveting exercise in pure cinema, and and interestingly, it's a war film that basically plays out almost entirely as a series of suspense beats, weaving in at least three, or sometimes even more than three, I think, uh, different uh, threads of narrative to uh, feel a sense of uh, terror and suspense around. It's also a war film with precious little war in it. Um, there is the, a bit of air combat in the air combat side, and there are shots fired anonymously into a place where our heroes are hiding, and there's a great deal of uh, Stuka bombing going on, but there's not uh, again, the, the enemy is almost absent from it, which makes it, paradoxically, I guess, a bigger presence that the Nazis have got these guys on the beach surrounded. But we never go back to Rundstedt's headquarters with him calling up uh, Hitler and saying, let me move the tanks. You're, you never see a German soldier do anything. I don't think you see a German physically in the movie at all. You just see their planes. And so the, the story becomes this incredible piece of bottle tension to which Nolan then adds his patented uh, mess with your time sense uh, scripting and creates, as you say, a movie that is somehow all suspense beats and built up with just nothing at all wrong with them until the very, very end where you're done and it's Dunkirk and you've come out of it in the same sort of uh, amazed, elevated status that I think Nolan wants you to, and also with a renewed appreciation for the Supermarine Spitfire, which he also wants you to, uh, right. because he loves that plane. And, and it's not a spoiler to say that the uh, actual Germans show up in the very last shot. Yeah. Yeah, it's it. I think it's uh, you know we know that the Germans win at, at yeah. Dunkirk, but we know that the retreat happens also. The movie is just it, it. It's a triumph. There's nothing wrong with it, and when there's nothing wrong with a Christopher Nolan movie, that means it's a pinnacle movie to me. Detroit was a uh, another historical recreation uh, you saw, and I haven't had a chance to catch yet. Yes, it's uh, Catherine Bigelow doing uh, the Detroit riots in 1967, specifically the Algiers Hotel incident, where a number of policemen murdered some people. 
uh, in an attempt to uh, suborn witnesses and convince uh, people to take the rap for a sniping uh, that may or may not have happened. The gun was never found, which certainly argues for it didn't happen at the Algiers, wherever it may have happened. And uh, it is a classic uh, Catherine Bigelow movie in that it builds amazing tension. It, it draws you in. It, it creates this mise-en-scene incredibly well. And then it sort of has this strangely disaffected, uh, differently toned ending. Then you are asking which part of this was the real movie. And part of her point is history doesn't end in a neat bow, which is right. But as a movie, I can, I can kind of get maybe why people are, are shying away from it because it's certainly, it's not a, the movie that you thought you were going to get when you st- sat down to watch Detroit. It's neither the horror film or the feel good, uh, politics movie that you, that you were hoping you would get out of, out of this movie. Instead, it's something, uh, a little more layered and a little weirder and a little differenter, um, which I love it. I loved it because I love Catherine Bigelow, but it, it may not be for everybody. Uh, one of the sleeper hits of the uh, season was uh, The Big Sick. Uh, this uh, sort of revives the completely moribund uh, romantic comedy genre by uh, filtering it through the real life of Camille Nanjiani and uh, his co-writer and wife, who is played in the film by Zoe Kazan. And it uh, uses... Uh, I think it's sort of the best version of the the Judd Apatow uh, perspective of make sure that the uncomfortable comedy is uh, deeply personal to you. In pure cinema, uh, we have to mention Okja. Uh, right. It, uh, very, uh, I actually saw it on a screen because I saw it in a, a double feature with his first movie followed by a, a Skype Q&A, or actually Skype Q&A in the middle. And the uh, again, the sense of sort of pure cinematic mastery that uh, Bong Joon-ho brings to the film is very much uh, in uh, presence here, even though the structure is one where the, the thrills happen in the middle and then the uh, the hammer sort of comes down at the end. And uh, it certainly has uh, taught me that I'm not going to eat uh, sapient CGI creatures uh, ever again. I, I hope you've learned a lesson, Robin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's available on Netflix, which is my excuse, though not my explanation for why I didn't see it, or my explanation, but not my excuse. The fact that I know I can see it anytime means that uh, practically I haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. That that is a, a weird thing. The uh, the economy of constant availability. Uh, however, I did make sure that I got out to the theater to see Logan Lucky. Uh, the least uh, plausible retirement in history has ended, as Steven Soderbergh has uh, uh, retired from. He, he, he's unretired from filmmaking. Now, when, when he was retired, he made four seasons of episodic television all himself. I and think. like three movies. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this is sort of a return to the uh, the heist format of Ocean's Eleven, but with a uh, sort of a, 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 a hill country, a country ham flavor. And it's uh, really, it's weird to think of now going back to like Out of Sight or the Ocean's movies as like a throwback to a previous era of filmmaking. But uh, clearly, I, I guess it is. But uh, if you love those films, uh, I would really recommend uh, checking out. Uh, yes, if I hadn't Lucky. gone to Dragon Con, I would have gone to Logan Lucky. And once I shake this cold, I'm going to go to Logan Lucky. So uh, Baby Driver, again, I guess my theme here is that uh, it was a great summer for pure cinema, for the uh, blending of sound and vision and, and movement and uh, films that uh, work on a, uh, a level that is not the literary level, but on... Uh, the level of the, the manipulation of all the different tools of cinema. And uh, I found that a, uh, a delight and uh, a great addition to now that the car chase movie is back with yes. uh, the, the furious movies, which 
you know, go to ever more absurd lengths to have cars still in them. <laughs> to go back to a, a classic car movie, all with uh, actual practical cars and practical car stunts, is uh, that's only just one of the, the pleasures that I found in that. And just the uh, Edgar Wright's uh, manipulation of the tools of cinema uh, was, uh, was thrilling to me. And that's one that I think will have a, a really high rewatch value for me. And as an as a example of the deconstructed musical, it is amazing. I mean, yes. the, I've, I've talked about car chase movies before as being musicals in that all the stories have to be progressed by car chases instead of songs. And now someone has made a, a musical about a car chase, really. And, uh, it's, it, 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 like everything Robin says is right. I think Robin, uh, liked it better than I did, but that's maybe more because of a higher appreciation for the technical mastery of the film and, uh, slightly less. Um, uh, nose wrinkling at one or two of the tonal shifts, but as a deconstructed musical and as a car chase movie, it is pretty much non-pareil and well worth watching. Uh, and finally, one that I uh, want to see and you have seen is Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde is, it, it, it probably should not come right after Baby Driver in that it is not remotely as good, although it wants to do the exact same thing that Baby Driver did, namely, uh, nestle you in a musical world to allow a unrealistic world to take place in front of you, affronting his realism. In this case, the main character is Charlize Theron, who is a better actor, I think, than uh, the titular baby driver, and so uh, carries it more thoroughly. But as against that, the plot is um, a little weaker. It's based on a comic book, uh, which I haven't read. But it is stylish. It is beautiful. It is Charlize Theron kicking all kinds of butt. And it is a post-born a bunch of fight scenes that when you talk about something being a previous era, James Bond movies are the previous era. Even the current James Bond movies, the previous era, because atomic blonde is a post born post haywire uh, thriller and can be watched profitably as that alone. It is also, um, and I think it's sort of, um, if you're just learning about cinematographers palettes, this is a good movie to teach yourself on because it's all very, very obvious and very, very clear. And it's got good old Cold War nostalgia, which is uh, something that the, the Generation X audience maybe is missing now. And so uh, well worth seeing for that reason. But really, it's Charlie's Theron that keeps this movie from just being a long, uh, empty music video. And uh, good thing she does, because otherwise it would be sad to go out on, an, on a bad note. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time to wend our way once again up the creaky uh, cobweb stairs to wave at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who nonetheless continues to glower at us, as always, and on into the Edwardian parlor, where waits the consulting occultist. And here he's waiting to 
consult Patreon backer David Shaw, who poses the following. Seventy years ago, the British finally returned control of the Indian subcontinent to its inhabitants. Since then, the province of Kashmir has caused endless problems between India and Pakistan. What is the official story between these tensions, and what is the occult-slash-mythos significance of Kashmir that really lies behind it all? So, Ken, Kashmir. Okay, Kashmir is, for those not familiar, more than just a Led Zeppelin song. It is also the northernmost sort of province or geographical region, or whatever you want to call it, of the Indian subcontinent. It's the part where the Himalayas and the Karakorams and the Pamirs all come and fold in. It's the sort of source of the Indus River. And by and large, uh, the Vale of Kashmir, which is sort of the middle of it, middle west part of it, is uh, a lovely and clement land, uh, much rustled over by everybody from Alexander the Great on down. And other bits have been sort of attached to it, mostly by the British, after the uh, first Anglo-Sikh war, when as a reward for not coming in against the Anglos, the Sikh Gulab Singh uh, became uh, the Raja of Kashmir. And in order to give him a proper Rajadom, they sort of tacked on all the other bits around. So they tacked on Ladakh, which is really sort of Tibet. They tacked on uh, Jammu, which is a Hindu region to the north of Kashmir. And they tacked on Gilgit and Baltistan and all kinds of other parts to make a, a big a uh, round knob of a country up on the top of India. And because it was run by Gulab Singh's descendants who inherited his don't attack the British genetics, it stayed pretty much the way it was up until 1947, at which point suddenly the tacking on of random things of the colonial era came home to roost. It did indeed. Kashmir was one of what they called the princely states, which tried to stay independent or stay at least part of Britain, the British Commonwealth, but were uh, forced with varying degrees of acerbity into holding elections. And in Kashmir, the election was held between the sort of pro-Pakistan side and the pro-India side. And Kashmir at the time was about 75% Muslim and about 20% Hindu, with the rest being Buddhists and Sikhs. The uh, election, however, was a little closer divided than that because a lot of the Muslims in the Valley of Kashmir were very secularized because they'd been living, um, uh, living high on the hog and had lots and lots of commercial connections. And others of the Muslims were Shia Muslims who didn't want to be ruled by a bunch of jerk Sunni Muslims in Pakistan. So there was a confused election that included a number of infiltrators and bad actors uh, from Pakistan attempting to terrorize the recalcitrant Muslim population into voting the right way. The Raja of Kashmir threatened to cancel the election and keep Kashmir independent. Uh, Lord Mountbatten said, well, we won't be having that, but if you promise to join India, I will send troops to rescue you from these Pakistani infiltrators. And that's pretty much what happened. British troops came up, drove out the uh, Pakistani infiltrators. Kashmir voted in quote marks in the sense that Gulab Singh voted uh, to join India. They have never had a referendum because at the time the Gulab Singh said, we can't have a referendum while there's all these infiltrators running around uh, harassing people and terrorizing them out of voting the way that they want to vote. And then afterwards, they haven't had one because they suspect that the people would vote to join Pakistan and we can't have that. But there has been a number of uh, wars, border and otherwise, between India and Pakistan over Kashmir, as well as a number of lower tension, but still occasionally fatal shooting incidents. And China came into the game by basically annexing 
during the Ladakh uh, region during the Sino-Indian War in the 60s and uh, uh, moved in and took over the part of Kashmir that was basically ethnically Tibetan. So we are now in a situation where India, China, and Pakistan all run parts of old school Kashmir. Everyone is on constant high alert. There's endless provocations of, of all kinds going across borders, terrorist uh, actions back and forth. There is a, a big uh, Kashmiri Islamist group that occasionally, you know, sets off bombs in Bombay or uh, in Mumbai or uh, attacks the uh, shopping malls and parliaments and whatnot, which is basically funded and uh, supported by the Pakistani ISI, as is the Pakistani uh, ISI's way of doing things. So that's the geopolitics. That's the but, geopolitics. But of course, the, the question before us uh, that uh, we're uh, being posed is... About the Nastopolitics. The Nastopolitics. So, uh, so one suspects uh, that being the source of one of the major rivers, uh, in addition to being the meeting point of all of these uh, mountain ranges, is uh, some sort of uh, source of uh, occult earth power. Is that where the story starts? Well, um, in that the story, as I have pieced it together, it starts with the notion that the goddess Sarasvati, um, who is uh, the Hindu goddess of music, knowledge, art, wisdom, all that good stuff, like uh, female Apollo, sort of, was personified by a river named the Sarasvati River, which is a magic river that no one has found, except they found, uh, because the Indus Valley moves around a lot, they've named one of the dead channels the Sarasvati and said that probably people lived on it at some point, and maybe that was the Sarasvati, but that's very much a back formation as opposed to the notion that I believe that Sarasvati is sort of the mother of all of these rivers, and therefore is uh, born in, uh, identified with, Kashmir. And so the Kashmir uh, mysticism uh, begins with that. There have been a number of uh, mystical poets of Sanskrit, and uh, uh, as well as mystical Muslim poets who have all uh, worked and written in Kashmir, because the aforementioned veil is rich and good for hanging out and being contemplative. Kashmir is also, I should point out, the home of Moria and Kutumi, the uh, ascended masters who spake unto Helena Petrovna Blavatsky in a series of... <laughs> It weirdly spelled letters, if you are a, um, uh, ascended master. I thought she was glowering at us extra hard this week. She was, because she knows we're going to talk about Kutumi without using the words, the master Kutumi. And so, they are both, uh, Kashmiri. Um, the, the, I think one of them, Moria, is supposed to be a Punjabi, uh, living in Kashmir, and, uh, Kutumi is a Kashmiri. The people who have, uh, decided that the secret masters were real people, um, have decided, have pretty much decided which specific Kashmiris they were. Those of them who have decided the secret masters were um, uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky disguising her handwriting. Ascribe that fact to the fact that uh, Madame Blavatsky spent a great deal of time in Kashmir going around and, and learning various kinds of ancient wisdom from folks, or at least learning what purported to be ancient wisdom that, so that she could recycle it into theosophy. The final uh, sort of high point of Kashmir, although I suspect that there are yetis and almas uh, seen in its uh, mountains, is that Francis Young's husband, the uh, British soldier who invaded Tibet in 1904 to keep it out of Chinese control, and look how good that lasted, had a mystical experience on the return from that invasion that convinced him that there were translucent aliens living on Altair that communicated with mankind by telepathy. And it was it, while he was the British resident in Kashmir that he indulged his 
fondness for experimenting in telepathy, among other things. So, Young's husband is attempting to provide solid Edwardian backing to his mystical insight while governing uh, the state of Kashmir. Or not governing it, but the Rajah governed it. He really told the Rajah uh, what the parameters of not angering the British were. Uh, but he was um, he was there running Kashmir for, uh, I think, three years from 04 to 08, maybe. And uh, during that time, sort of uh, came to his full understanding of the importance of stellar communication and aliens and virile race. Uh, that, that everyone should uh, get together and uh, and have the virile races create a super race of of humans. So that's that's a young young's husband who has uh, his own uh, no doubt delightful problems. But Kashmir is where he got into that. Right. So if you're uh, going there now as a player character in in search of mystical trouble, uh, you could be trying to uh, hit up one of Blavatsky's uh, uh, secret masters or to find long-buried theosophical source text, perhaps the source texts that tell you the truth that Blavatsky then uh, uh, messed around with so that you can, uh, uh, you know, ferret out all the uh, unpleasant racism out of that backstory, or uh, indeed uh, looking for the mystical uh, source of the Indus that uh, uh, may or may not become a... Uh, a, a being that you can talk to and chat with. And so uh, there's all sorts of uh, sort of mystical reasons that you can create. Uh, and of course, you know, the idea that telepathic aliens may be coming down to hang out with their buddy. And, you know, they left a couple of light years ago. They don't know why he's not there. So it could be the translucent aliens have landed and uh, they're looking for young husband and you're uh, uh, trying to clue them into the fact that he, he ain't there now. Right. That uh, young husband is, uh, is out. The um, possibilities, I think, of the young's husband attempting to sort of awaken the virile race is interesting, given that there is a goddess there. Uh, one perhaps assumes that some sort of uh, giant uh, sacral mating is intended to occur. Better than a moon child, like a mountain child, is supposed to be born. Um, if you can awaken Sarasvati with your with your virile race or your um, uh, or your migo or whatnot. His mother was a river. His father was a mountain, and uh, he's here to shake things up and uh, possibly uh, toss a rain cloud your way if you uh, make him mad or make her mad. Right. Exactly. The other uh, thing that you might be in Kashmir doing is you might be looking for you might be looking for the missing works of Abhinava Gupta, who circa 1015 AD uh, put the final touches on his last book and then one assumes died. But who knows? Maybe he uh, bilocated into the mountains or um, merged his life force or became a ascended sacred master. Who can say? But he had um, 44 works on such topics as Tantra, uh, occultism, uh, invocations of various gods, uh, aesthetics, which of course, as we all know, means sacred geometry. Of the 44, only 21 have survived. He wrote them in Kashmir. So in theory, if there are the other 20 uh, sitting around, they might be somewhere in a cave in Kashmir. And that might be something you're looking for. And Abhinava Gupta may have had the special insight you need to uh, reawaken the virile race or talk to Sarasvati or defeat the Migo or uh, master telepathy or figure out what it is the transparent aliens from Altair really want, since it probably isn't the furtherance of the British Empire. Uh, well, uh, with that question hanging in the air, I think it's time for us to uh, exit. Uh, this particular episode, and uh, we'll uh, re-enter, uh, with or without the help of translucent aliens, 
uh, next week at this very same time. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join a life spiral containing such patrons as... Phil Bailey. Jack Ulick. Steve Sigety. Jacob Ansari. And Shane McLean. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.